Hello, dear listeners. Before we get to the episode, a little housekeeping. We're changing the way we roll out our podcasts. As a paying subscriber, you have typically had to switch between our two podcast feeds. Going forward, we'll be posting the full episode, part one and part two, into this RSS feed. This means this will be the only feed you need from here on out. We hope this helps improve your experience with Wisdom of Crowds. As always, thank you for your support. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. We have a very special episode for all of you. We haven't really done something quite like this before, and it was kind of an epic conversation, as I think you'll see. Our guest is the great Christine Emba, returning to the pod for a second time. She's a columnist at the Washington Post and the author of a new book called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It's fascinating, funny, and beautifully written, and I think it's also important. It's one of those rare books that may actually change the way you think, feel, and maybe even live. We're including a link in the show notes, so do check it out. We discuss a lot of big topics. The perils of modern dating, the sex recession, consent, incels, marriage, and porn. Sex is sex, but sex is also about the kinds of societies we want to live in. So we delve into philosophical territory as well. We debate the nature of freedom, the dangers of having too much choice, and whether religions were onto something in regulating sex. We talk about whether liberalism has made us unhappy by giving us too much of what we want, or perhaps too little of it. As we usually do, we split the episode into two parts, each about an hour long. Part one is available for everyone, part two is for subscribers. And I'll just note that part two does get a little bit spicy. Without further ado, our conversation with Christine Emba. Enjoy. Uh, we call this episode, I think, Sexy Time with Christine Emba, right? Wow, perfect. That's just just what I need. (laughs) Um, I think that's actually probably an appropriate title because for all the the listeners out there, I am staring at this pillar candle in a vase that's on on Demir's uh, coffee table. Yeah. It's incredibly romantic. There's a bottle of red wine next to it. Yeah. And... Yeah. I, I feel some kind of way about it. I'm not sure what. Welcome, but. Christine. Welcome <laughs> welcome to my living room studio. We Thank try and you. keep our guests nice and comfortable. Wow. You want to hear another like fun anecdote that relates to the title of the book? Um. Uh, on my way here, <laughs> there's a song that just got like etched in my mind and I kept on sort of like humming it to myself. Uh, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Oh, great song. Yeah, because your book just made me think about that song. I think it's by this dude called Hadaway. Hadaway, Don, yeah. He Hadaway. was like a one-hit wonder in like the 80s or 90s. In it's the 90s. such a catchy song. Yeah, you still hear that at the club. <laughs> the club. Some, some when's clubs. The, when's the last time you were at the club, Shadi? Uh, I haven't done that in a long time. It's not really my vibe. I'm more of a conversational person. I like to learn about people's lives, mm. talk mm. to mm. them be exposed to different experiences. Wow. Like clubbing. That's a different experience. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Christine. You got a new book. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I am excited about it. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, for our listeners, Shadi hosted a, a romp and book party for Christine last week that, that got into the medias. We're celebrities now. <laughs> 
riding on Christine's coattails, I think, basically. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen, uh, honestly, I, I just, I'm still overwhelmed with foreign policy stuff, but I saw you got a, a nice review in the New York Times. Um, where else have, where else has the book been appearing lately? Yeah, I, Michelle Goldberg from the Times wrote like a whole column about it, which I didn't yeah. know was going to happen, yeah. actually. Um, it's been written about in The Week, City Journal. Um, I've done a bunch of podcasts about it. Um, perhaps something may be coming out in The Atlantic. Um, also, I had a big essay in The Washington Post that was actually kind of an excerpt and adaptation from the book called um, Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sexual Ethic. Um, yeah, and we'll link to that so people can get a taste before they commit and buy the book. No, you should just buy the book. The book is better. <laughs> Commitment is not necessary to buy the book. Consent. Okay, but maybe uh, this is a good place okay. to start. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about, because I actually don't know the story. I mean, I, I've, I've read the book. We've talked about it before. But I don't really know how you came to write this book. Like, what is the origin story? Did you have like a eureka moment where you woke up one day and it was like, this is what I want to devote the next one to two years of my life talking about and writing about? Was there something that triggered you to think that this was an urgent thing to discuss and you had obviously something distinctive to say about it? I'm trying to think of what kind of dream I would have been having that would have forced me to wake up in the morning and say, ah, yes, I want to spend the next three years of my life just writing about sexual problems. Um, <laughs> but no, <laughs> I mean, my full-time real job is as an opinion columnist for the Washington Post, um, not just, you know, lurking friend of the pod. Um, but my beat is ideas in societies and ideas in society. And I've always been interested in just sort of cultural and ethical questions and gender, race, these sort of things that make up who we are and how we think about where we fit into the world. Um, but in 2017, 2018, you know, looking for topics as one does, I wrote a lot about the Me Too movement. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer. Um, and those cases were interesting to me because they showed that you know, many of the problems that we might have thought were solved by the sexual re revolution, by the feminist movement, um, hadn't gone away. <laughs> these questions of power dynamics, these questions of men abusing women. Um, and the Me Too moment was good because it gave us space to talk about them and gave us some answers and intimations as to what the right thing might be. Like, no, Harvey Weinstein, don't lock your underlings in a hotel room and assault them. That should have been obvious, but apparently it wasn't. Um, but at the same time, there were, you know, these other Me Too stories, like Aziz Ansari at Babe.net, Cat Person, um, that story at The New Yorker, which I think is still The New Yorker's most read piece of short fiction ever. Believe it or not, I have not read it to this what? very day. I mean, I hear it. I've heard about it so much for some reason. I In that moment, I just never actually read it. And right. now I think it's too late, probably. It is not too late. Have you read it, Demir? Of course not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I read about it in your book. That's that's not the same. <laughs> that's how I generally treat fiction, is is I read about it in nonfiction books. Wait, sidebar, <laughs> do you read fiction? I mean, there's a little bit here on this bookshelf, but... That's unconvincing. Yeah, not much, though. Okay. Um, well, Cat Person is like this short story. It's written in the very close third person. It's about a college student who goes on a date with this 
older guy and it just sucks. She doesn't really like him, but she has sex with him anyways because she sort of feels like she's supposed to. There's this moment where she's like almost looking at herself from outside of her body and trying to imagine like how to sexualize the encounter. Um, she leaves. Afterwards, a guy texts her and calls her a slut, basically. Whoa. Whoa. And like, this is the story. <laughs> it's not Come on, pleasant. Shadi. Come on. I did not know that's what it was about. I think it's, she describes it in her book, doesn't she? <laughs> I don't anyway. know if I go into total detail because you can go well, read the story. Without going into too much detail about the actual cat person story, I mean, why, why did he, like, like I, it seems like a weird thing for him to text afterwards. Yeah, it is. Um, or it should be. But what was fascinating about cat person and the Aziz Ansari story, these were stories of sex that was ostensibly consensual, right? You know, both people had agreed to it, and yet it was bad. It was depressing. It was almost traumatic for some women. And then the crazy thing was how many people, women especially, just related to this. Like, Cat Person became one of the most read, most shared stories because so many women were like, oh, yeah, yeah, this has happened to me. I've never seen someone write about it so clearly. Like, oh, this... This is like a fairly normal encounter. I've definitely had that experience. Um, and that seemed crazy to me. Like this is a terrible experience of sex that is apparently incredibly common even after the sexual revolution, after the feminist movement. So what is going on here? Is our sexual culture just bad? And looking around, talking to friends, reading these stories, even at the depths of the Me Too movement, we also had like, you know, the shitty media men list, like all of these other stories of sex that was questionable, but not criminal, but still very bad and very normal. Um, I felt like asking the question, just like, what is going on? What is the problem with our sexual culture? Um, going forward from there, I guess, then the question was, okay, first, the baseline, we we have consent. We seem to have like agreed on consent as a standard for our sexual encounters, but clearly consent is not preventing these objectively horrifying sort of sexual encounters from happening. So is it not enough? What else do we need? And then, you know, what are these, like, what are other assumptions maybe that we've made about sex, about relationships, about each other that are skewing the sexual culture, skewing our experiences, making it so that, you know, we haven't gotten as far as we thought we might have, that our experiences were still bad. And this felt pressing because, I mean, I'm I'm a woman living in the world, you know, dating, trying to meet people, having friends who are dating, trying to meet people who tell me about these sometimes terrifying encounters. And I just wanted to help in some way to try and figure out what was going on and how to make it better. So so your your book is let's be clear about sex. However, when I was reading it, I thought to myself that it's about something much deeper. And in some ways it's, it's also a philosophical meditation and you maybe have to read between the lines to kind of get the full effect of that. She's a Straussian. A Straussian, yes. <laughs> but it seems to me that this is fundamentally a book about freedom and choice. And Please push back if you don't think this is the right characterization. But sometimes it seems to me that you're you're using the debate around sex to get at these bigger questions which really animate you, which is the paradox of having too much freedom. 
And you're questioning whether having more freedom actually makes us happier. So you have, I mean, one of your chapters is titled, we're liberated and we're miserable, which I think sums up how this promise of freedom that we thought this would make our lives better, but in fact, it's made us sadder and not just sadder, it, it's contributed to a profound sense that something is not quite right. And sex is an important part of people's lives. So sex is part of it, but extend the metaphor or the analogy and talk about the kind of the marketization and commodification of our lives in any number of ways that we're just bombarded with all of these options. And it seems to me that you're saying that maybe we have to make a much more conscious effort to say maybe freedom isn't really the goal and we have to reorient ourselves away from this singular focus on free personal freedom and unlimited choice. And we can talk maybe a little bit later about dating apps and all that, but dating apps capture the sense that we could be with anyone in DC or throughout the country. The and world. The, the world, world Tinder even. has this yeah, yeah, you international. You can, tele uh, you can teleport to wherever you want. Yes. Belarus. Ex <laughs> Belarus, Belarus be. specifically is, I don't know. I didn't want to say, okay. I didn't want to say Ukraine. That would have been tasteless. So, so, are, are you, so he said are, it anyway. <laughs> I said Belarus. <laughs> but are you in a sense, like, is this like a broader critique of li liberalism or the liberal idea? Um, how far would you go? Am I going too far in kind of attributing these things to, to your argument? I don't think so, actually. You know, like when I was writing the book, when I was thinking about it, I first started thinking about it as almost an academic question, like, ah, the sexual culture, where did we think the sexual revolution would take us and where have we gone? And like, what's the delta there? What's the problem? Um, but as I was researching and like talking to people, it became much more of a, a sort of personal project. And picked at a lot of questions like through sort of the lens of sex that were much larger than than just sex itself. And you know, one of the like one of the first things I say in the book is that, you know, you're not crazy for thinking that something in our sexual culture is off. But also I think that extends to the the feeling of disconnection, the feeling of alienation that people are feeling in modern society, you know, more commonly. It's not crazy to think that something is is amiss. What we need to do is talk about it and figure out what that is. Um, and so in the book, you know, when I talk about, you know, asking questions about what false assumptions have we made about sex and sexuality that have brought us to the weird cultural malaise place that we're in today, one of them, a major one, is the assumption of freedom, of perfect freedom, of the idea that, you know, freedom will make everything better. In some ways, this was kind of a false, a false promise of many of these revolutions that really, to make the world better, what we need is for everyone to just get more free. If everyone had more options, more choice, could do really whatever they want because we were repressed in the past or held back in the past or something, then we would be better. Things would be happier. And yet that just doesn't seem to have solved the problem. Um, and that goes for sex, but that also goes for so many other parts of our life. And I think sex is, you know, where I started, the starting point and sort of the focus of this book. But in some ways it could be a metaphor for a lot of 
you know, other things that are very important to us that we're looking at in the wrong way. Before we like go down the, the freedom rabbit hole, because I think there's a lot there. Uh, and I do think you're your book is Straussian, but... Um, <laughs> but okay, well, <laughs> do, go on Do you first. want to explain to our dear listeners oh, who Mr. Strauss is? No, no, it. because you, you frequently <laughs> accuse people of being Straussians, and I want you to define what you mean when no, you say no, that. No, no, it's, it's a folk definition. It just means that you're... you're well, okay, here, I'll, I'll lay out my case for you being Straussian. Mm. I, I think, um, you know, uh, my, my uh, intuition is is that uh, the logic of writing a book like this uh, necessitates a certain approach to it, which, you know, you want it to be read. So you start from the individual and from sort of a, a kind of sex positivity and then smuggle in a, bu- a bunch of uh, subversive uh, conservative ideas into it mm, to, to actually pollute the minds of, of right-thinking, like, normies. And that's actually— Wouldn't that's that why- be left-thinking normies? Uh, I meant I meant right like normies, no, just I, like I know. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, left thinking normies, exactly. Um, so I mean, I think that's what's going on. I think the book is great for that very reason. But um, you know, I, I guess the before we get into that part, do you do we know um, whether dating has gotten dating and sex, the whole like thing has gotten worse? Or, again, like reported through surveys or happiness studies or whatever. Um, Or it's always kind of sucked like this. And uh, just our expectations because the sexual revolution were towards a better world that just has never realized. Do you have a sense of, of that from your research or, you know, just like reading things? So I think it's both, actually. Um, Yeah. Finding connection, finding love or something like it you know, creating a good relationship has always been hard and has always been difficult in different ways in different times. Like that's, we can just set that as a baseline. That's kind of the human condition. Um, But there is data, you know, that today people are finding sex and relationships particularly difficult. So like according to Pew, um, nearly half of American adults and a majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. Um, fully half of single adults have just given up on finding a romantic relationship at all. And then the sex recession, so-called, was something that we were already talking about before COVID-19. But in 2021, we reached a 30-year low in sexual activity, in people forming romantic partnerships, which doesn't even mean getting married, but also people getting married, um, and leading the charge or I guess like heading up the rear guard here is young people um, like millennials and Gen Zs. So it does seem that there is a specific malaise that is hitting at this moment. Um, And I think, but I think you're also right though, that there is just a question, and this is something I was very interested in writing the book, of what we expected would happen um, from various movements and revolutions and what did happen? Like there is a delta between what we thought we were going for or what, you know, these utopian thinkers and activists thought they were going to get and what we've gotten. So I'm interested in kind of how these movements might have been perverted or sort of pushed off of the path that they were aiming for. And we've ended up like in this place where cat person is normal and men send college students text calling them sluts after they sleep with them. And that's just like a thing that happens. Can I add a very depressing polling result, which is also from your book that really stood out to me. 
in a 2019 Pew survey, men were twice as likely as women to say that they weren't dating because they thought that no one would be interested in them. How depressing is that? There's like a bunch of guys out there who literally think they're worthless and no woman would ever want to date them. That's surprising to me. Yeah, that's, I mean, the incel movement has gotten a lot of press recently and it's not because it's minor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but also say like, there's also like anecdata. I know from my own life, if I compare dating before the apps to dating after the apps, I'm pretty sure I was happier. And the reason I didn't have apps in the in the previous era is because I had a BlackBerry. I had a BlackBerry until 2014. Wow, that's not... So from like, yeah, so like <laughs> from... When did, when did Tinder hit the scene? What year? 2012. Wow. That yeah, but not only on iPhones or actual yeah, like proper smartphones. So for those no of us who are... I um, user, my God. He's yeah. so professional. Yeah. Haven't you... Look at this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's something really nice about... you you would limit your dating pool to just the people who lived in your city that you would meet naturally through your friends, through social activities, parties, whatever. That means that you don't have to always be striving and wondering what else is out there because you'll meet what is out there through your just everyday life. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, I, I, you know, inept and like not social enough to do this, but I was part of like a group of friends in the pre- dating app era, who really did go to bars and pick up women. And so that was amusing, amazing to watch, really, as a, as a social phenomenon. And it, and, it, and it took like a level of, I don't know, level of social savvy, but also, I don't know, the kind of bars that people would go to for that. And the thing that always struck me about it, I mean, yeah, sure, but I'm not sure that the norm was necessarily what you're saying, Shadi, that was all through friends. Before apps, people went to bars, uh, you know, either, you know, to, or clubs, as we were saying earlier, you know, you, you'd go there in order to hook up. And that to me is, you know, maybe something I'd, I'd press you on, Christine, a little bit about, you know, the, the, that happiness delta and fair enough, you know, sex recessions, all the rest of that. Uh, and I, I do attribute a lot of that to technology, I think, um, not necessarily to, you know, other things, but, you know, the bar scene, the dating bar scene, the hookup scene before apps, pretty analogous in its brutality, I think, to what is now. Maybe what's changed with dating apps is that like being in the bar hookup scene is now accessible to everyone and now everyone's partaking in it. Whereas there was like a, a, a higher level, you needed, you know, a level of, I don't know what, drive to basically go do that in the bar scene. But you know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's it seems to me in my recollections every bit as uh, harsh, uh, fraught, um, cold, inhuman as anything we're seeing right now. So if anything, you know, I mean, clearly apps have made a difference, but I wonder, you know, if if to a certain extent, again, just to push on this a little bit, is is hasn't dating to a certain extent always been miserable? Shadi's like you know friendship circle meeting people aside, you know, because people have always done that as well. And of course, you'd always have that alternative, even if you were hitting the bars and clubs. But you know what I mean? Like, hasn't always kind of been horrible. Again, just to sort of drive that a little bit Totally little bit disagree, more. but Christine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a dark, a dark vision. Um, again, I think I would say that dating has always been hard. Dating has always had its difficulties. 
But I do think that there is a uniqueness to some of the trends that we're seeing today that's worth talking about. Um, I mean, there's this chart that I talk about in the book by, you know, Michael, I think it's by the researcher Michael J. Rosenfeld from Stanford. Um, and it shows that in between 2000 and 2010, there was just this huge shift. So the way that most people used to meet a relationship partner was through friends. And like going to a bar um, or restaurant was, I think, like the second most common way, but it was almost tied with meeting through coworkers. But by far and away, you know, at its peak, like 40% of people met a partner through friends or networks. And then in 2000, like between 2000 and 2010, friends just take a nosedive on this graph. Like it's really remarkable to look at. And at the same time, online dating just shoots basically vertical. Um, and they, I think by now that the graph cuts off at 2010. Um, but by now I think they've basically changed places. And I do think that the world of dating apps is actually perhaps in some ways, well, it's definitely harsher than I think meeting through friends in part because there's just no mediation. Um, and the way that these apps are set up uh, inculcates a, a certain mindset of people as commodities, like unlimited options. You can swipe through them and you also don't have any responsibility to treat them well because like, who's going to know? Um, and yes. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think that that's a difference. I, I mean, I, th I think, I think we agree I mean, I, I agree, uh, and the data, you know, again, which I'm ignorant of, I, I wouldn't challenge any of that. It's just, you know, maybe my 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 point then, if I was to narrow it a bit, is that uh, apps have just democratized a certain style of dating, which mm -hmm. actually prioritize sex, and that's maybe where I'd like to drive this conversation to a certain yeah. extent, because what I'm getting at in the, you know, uh, the expectations part of what I was saying earlier is that by, again, to Shadi's point about uh, the subtext of your book about freedom and, you know, unlimited choice. Um, also, the other sort of uh, stated, and I'm not sure exactly how you relate to it, but, you know, uh, desired benefit of the sexual revolution was that uh, sex would become, you know, or put it this way, that sex is fundamental to a certain kind of like, self-discovery and fulfillment, mm -hmm. like development of the, of the human and properly experiencing it is key to like human flourishing in a way. And I, I think that that remains as a sort of thesis of your book, even though I think you undermine it quite a lot. This is why I think it's a Straussian book. By the end, I think you undermine the thesis in, in a lot of ways. Wait, how does she undermine the thesis? In the last chapter. I don't want to give it away for the readers. We'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Okay. I, I'm interested in learning this too. Yeah. So. No, but I mean, uh, you, 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 you undermine it by questioning it. Fine. Let's get to it now. By, by questioning basically the, the, uh, where we put it in the hierarchy. You still, I think, uh, think is an important part of human flourishing, but you 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 try and sort of deflate its perhaps importance in the hierarchy of of, of needs, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. in some way, especially when the in the constellation of a relationship. But you know what I'm getting at again is like is is um, do you think that 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 uh, to put the question like very tightly, do you think that um, that's as much of a problem as anything. This kind of uh, 
like lifting sex to like a higher level of meaning that it can possibly ever uh, provide. And that that's a product of the sexual revolution that has now tried to sort of extol this thing, which quite frankly, you know, uh, in previous times, even, you know, we're not, don't need to go into Victorian eras or anything like that, but was, uh, you know, known to be like, if you're just pursuing it in sort of normal dating and we're not meeting through friends, it's kind of brutal and transactional Mm -hmm. and cheapening and horrible, just like now everyone feels through apps. Um, and now somehow we thought that we were going to transcend that sort of baseness of sexual transactionalism and that it would somehow, we could find meaning in it once we rid this, but maybe that's not right. Does that make sense? It does, I think. So I will try and answer that question in two parts. And Shadi, you should feel free to jump in too, because um, <laughs> sure. I'm interested in what you think. Um First of all, actually, just tacking back to the last question, why dating has always been bad, how has dating gotten worse? One thing that I should have mentioned and just neglected to to mention when we were just talking about this, um, there have been some shifts in what is expected and what dating is expected to look like that are pretty significant. Um, So talking about the inclusion of sex and dating, I think sex has always sort of been a part of it. But if you're talking to... Um, women especially, you're hearing that now when you're, you know, you go on a date with somebody, it's expected that you would have sex with them pretty fast um, in a short period of time. Like that's just a general ex- expectation that like this will lead to sex. I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think that's the common expectation for a first date. Oh, not for a first date. Oh, okay. Not for a first date. Second or um, third. <laughs> inter- well, okay. Um, and then I think you... You also hear a lot of women and, frankly, men talking about the effect of pornography um, and media on how they experience sex and dating. So women who, like a woman in, you know, a story I tell in this book, a woman just came up to me because I told her I was talking about, I was writing this book on sex. And she was like, yeah, so I've been going on dates with this guy, um, but he chokes me? Is that, is that okay? Like, I don't like it. But, you know, we're we're dating and like that's kind of a normal thing that happens. It happens to my friends too. Is that okay? And the fact that she had to ask me that just a random stranger at a party whether it was okay, meaning whether she was okay for being offended and kind of disgusted by this, suggests that there are now almost new expectations for like the lengths to which one should be expected to go um, in any variable encounter, which I think makes dating feel kind of darker and scarier in some ways. So here's what I think's attention in your book is as far as I understand it, that on one hand, there is a sex recession. So at one point in the book, you say, what if we had less sex by focusing on better sex, good sex, ethical sex? But what if we're already having less sex? So in some ways, what you're calling for has already been happening, maybe not for the right reasons, but it seems that younger generations are becoming less wild, less into sex. So that's something that seems to be happening quite clearly on one hand. On the other hand, you hear stories like the choking story. um, And I have heard more of that as well. And so are these two things happening simultaneously? So people are having less sex, but the people who are still having sex are having it in a sort of like weirder, 
more porn-influenced way. I mean, that's one hypothesis. And I should also, just to add some context for listeners, I think what's really striking about this the choking story in your book is that she likes this guy a lot. She's even considering him as a long-term mate. I don't know if that's the word that we use. <laughs> you pronounce but, that really weirdly. <laughs> long-term mate. Long-term mate. mate. So she's like, she feels really lucky to have met this guy. She's really into him. And she feels that she can't really raise this with him and say, hey, listen, dude, I like you, but I'm not into the choking thing. And that actually maybe says says something about your desires and fantasies that I'm not comfortable with. She doesn't feel that she can say that to him because she doesn't want to lose him. So she almost feels like there's a kind of implicit bargain. You have an amazing guy, but life is about trade-offs, so you can't have it all. So perfect guy, but he chokes me. And I got to like take that. That's sort of the sense that I get from her own kind of self-justification of it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, like, I think that in some ways that particular kind of trade-off seems a bit novel to this moment of dating. Demir is frowning. I can see that. But I guess in... (laughs) So it's also a, a contrast between, again, expectations of what we thought we would get and where we thought we'd be at and where we are. Yeah. Um, it, I think we were in a place where we hoped that that wasn't the transaction that was happening, and yet it still is. And then, you know, this question of she doesn't feel like she has any recourse, like any real way to say that, like, anything to point to, to be able to be like, I'm not into this because X is wrong. So there's much less space to you know, criticize what might be happening in the dating environment. Um, So I think that that is also an an interesting shift. Like there are almost no norms to point to, to sort of structure and schedule interactions. So things feel a little bit crazy and out of control for people um, in a certain sense. Uh, And on on the sex session thing, so how do you see that? So are people just already kind of deciding what you want them Mm -hmm. to decide because they're voting with their, uh, I don't know what the correct analogy would be. We'll just go with feet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah, actually, yeah. Let's just stick with feet. (laughs) Joking. Voting with their genitals. Are they already sympathetic to your argument and that's the reason they're having a lot less sex? I mean, what's going on here with the sex recession? Yeah, so there are a lot of theories for this and it's not totally clear, frankly. Um, And so I don't, and that's why I don't actually think that this is just an answer to my question that like people have already stopped having sex and that's great. Um, One of the key arguments that I make in this book um, is that part of the disappointment with where our sexual culture is going is that most people, a majority of people when they're dating, when they're looking for a partner, like sex is, sex is great, but have you ever, you know, experienced being fully loved and cared for by another person? Many people are, in fact, looking for love, looking for a relationship, looking for, you know, community and empathy with someone else. And so I think another another thing that's perhaps different about our sexual culture and the dating culture right now, too, is almost this tyranny of what I call the tyranny of chill, the mm. expectation that, you know, you're dating, but like, it's not cool to say that you're looking for something serious or that you're looking for a relationship. Actually, like the best way to to date is to be looking for the zipless fuck, no strings attached. If you say that you want something more, you're a weirdo. So people- Sorry, parents. (laughs) Sorry, parents. Um, So I think people feel a little bit stunted in their ability to find 
what they really want by what the culture is telling them, by the messaging they're getting, what, you know, what the story is now, even though that's opposed to perhaps their real feelings. And so to the sex recession, sorry, I'm circling back to that one. I think that, you know, when I talk about what a good sexual culture would look like um, and what our goals really are, I think that the goal that we should be searching for is actually what we really want, which is sex that is good for us, that treats us as full human beings, that actually enables the connection with other people that we really want. And so I propose, you know, a different ethic of sex other than consent, willing the good of the other, that's supposed to move us towards, you know, having sex that is more empathetic, more caring, more the type of sex that leads to these relationships and these experiences that we're really looking for together with each other. The sex recession, on the other hand, I think has a lot of causes, but one theory um, talked about by a number of researchers also is that people just don't think that they can get that anymore. And so they're just kind of giving up or opting out of the whole thing altogether because what they are receiving is almost too painful for them. Um, you know, there's a theory also that especially teenagers, you know, are having these sexual encounters where, you know, they go into something and then they experience not just rough sex, but really rough and alarming experiences like strangulation, for instance. And that is scary to them. And they'd rather just be like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. But isn't it also like the emotional hurt that, you know, with the younger, younger generations, they're coddled a little bit. They're, they're not used to dealing with adversity as much. So sex and just dating and relationships requires being vulnerable. It requires emotional pain. You mm -hmm. will get your heart broken. You will get sad. And that can have a big effect on you. And, I, and my sense is that with the youngsters, <laughs> based on my interactions with some of these young folks- With is the that, youth. With the youth is that they, they don't always have like too much pain is not something they're necessarily act. And I'm here, I mean, emotional hurt really. Mm -hmm. um, getting your heart broken is like a really difficult thing. And I don't know if like listeners remember when they first got their heart broken in a pretty serious way. And I don't know if you remember, wow. but it's like one of the worst feelings in the world that you can possibly have. So maybe it's easier for people to just like, not even put themselves out there. I mean, it is part of it that, people are just not emotionally ready for that level of potential hurt and vulnerability right now. <sighs> Moment of silence as we each quietly think about the first time our heart was broken. <laughs> okay, Shadi's laughing. Moment of silence <laughs> over. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that there is, you know, a fear also of vulnerability. But for many of the people I talk to, many of the young people, um, it's A, that they've tried kind of the hookup culture. They see that happening and it's not working for anyone and they don't want any part of it. So why even begin? Um, and that actually is kind of a powerful feeling. There's also, you know, this understanding of what the best, what our highest goals should be. And this is something that I talk about in the book. I think that our culture has developed a kind of a, a liberal autonomy goal, a norm that the best way to live your life is to maximize, maximize your personal freedom. You need to be 
free of ties and ready to chase your career and chase your dreams, but career is a big part of it. And perhaps a relationship would hold you back. Uh, Getting your heart broken will slow you down. So maybe that's something to just set aside, you know, for now and do something that is better for you as a person, which is sometimes perhaps appealing up to a point, but eventually I think many people get to a point where they're like, oh yeah, actually connection would be nice to care about someone and be cared for in return. And I actually think that especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, as people have had time to sort of get off the apps, work from home, sit down and think about their lives, sometimes while they're isolating alone in their home or apartment, there has been a realization among a lot of people that, oh yeah, it would it would be nice to have real human connection in my life. I cannot relate to these people who during the pandemic didn't have human connection. So I have nothing to say on this. Like it's, <laughs> it's super odd to me that there were people who actually did not socialize or have friends or see their friends or go out for God knows how long. And I, I feel bad for those folks. And, you know, now that we know that the pandemic isn't real, I think in retrospect, <laughs> Okay, I'm messing around there. But Demir- Shadi has never <laughs> believed in COVID. <laughs> no, no. I mean, before before you even got here, Christine, we were we were questioning the reality of COVID mm. and how it's how- just amazing how memory hold it was. Like it's like people just like almost overnight, people just stopped thinking, writing, talking about COVID. No one can be bothered. Anyway, that's but, like a little bit of a tangent. Yeah. But Demir, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so again, Christine, though it's 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 interesting. Uh, in a previous answer to Shadi, you said sex that is good for us was like a phrase that you used. Mm -hmm. So again, trying to redeem sex. But then like in your second answer, I feel like, again, this is what I took out of the book is, is to what people want is relationships. Obviously sex is part of a healthy relationship and that's fine. But that's what I meant by, you know, I think the, the, the move you make towards the end of the book is to like try and, even though sometimes you seem to like elide the two in a way, that like when you use sex, it's also because there's an expectation of it somehow being tied to relationships and actually even standing in for relationships. Again, I think the subversive move, if you will, in the book is to to make that move. But I, I it's interesting that you even now insist on saying like sex that is good for us rather than than saying, you know, maybe we should really think about what is what is a relationship, what is human decency, what is Manners is the other thing. I think we talked about this last time you were on that the was podcast. My first, my first pod visit. Right yes. to this day, people say is their favorite wisdom of crowds episode and of I, all time. And, and if yeah. you guys missed it, we are going to include a link. Yes, we will. And you have to go back <laughs> and listen to it. It's it's a it's a beautiful set. It, it's a but beautiful episode. I just make fun of Shadi, and and that's why. It's kind to of be a, clear. a bit of that. Yeah. A bit. But so 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 I mean, you know, is is it again? Uh, where do you come out? I mean, to, to push you on that again, like, yeah. where do you come down on that? In the sense that, again, to sharpen the question once more, I feel like the book is structured in a way to appeal to a f- sex positive pe- people, readership, <laughs> who only understand the concept in those terms. Um, and I think by the end of it, you make a pretty successful pivot to something else. And yet still I catch you talking about sex that is good for us, even in this podcast. So where do you come down on it? Yeah, sorry. You did ask that question earlier and no, I no, got no, it's fine. distracted by another question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good one. So as I said, I guess at the very beginning of this podcast, the question that sort of just started this journey to talking about sex was the Me Too movement. 
Um, and the stories that women were telling me about their sort of me too adjacent experiences almost. And, you know, I think I framed the book in that way because that, that was just kind of the starting point. Um, and when I, I think when I say it became a more personal project, I first implicated myself, um, as I explored sort of the false assumptions and the weird things that were going on in the culture. But also, yes, I think that the way that we think about sex, you know, is kind of a stand-in for the way that we think about a lot of other elements of society, elements of, you know, our personalities. Um, You know, sex is I quote Roger Scruton in this book, um, which Michelle Goldberg from the Times had like a real bout of confusion about. Yeah, yeah he's an arch, arch conservative. He passed away, I mean, a, a little while ago, but he's like pretty intense. Again, this is the tell of Straussianism <laughs> here, smuggling in subversive ideas. Go on. Is it really subversive? No, no actually, Michelle Goldberg was like, Christine Emba is a heterodox yeah. thinker. Like, yeah. she quotes Andrea Dworkin, but also. Roger Scruton, I don't really know what's going on here. Yeah. Um, but he points out that, you know, sex is kind of the bond of society. You know, it's what creates society and also what can explode it. And I think sex is thought of as this like one specific action that people do, but it has a lot of other ramifications. It is in some ways currently, although I don't think it actually should be, a stand-in for how we talk about relationships. Um, it is a thing that it's a locus for how we relate to each other and what that looks like. You know, when I ask a question about like, what is, what does sex mean? What is sex for? I'm also, I think, asking the question, what are human beings for? How should we relate to each other? And what should that look like? And I think I talk about, you know, okay, what would a good sexual culture or a good sexual ethic look like? Because the conversation in the book starts with talking about how consent has failed as a sexual standard, um, how it has in some ways warped our sexual culture and we need a better standard that we all live up to and a better sexual culture. But I think implicated in that is our entire culture. Um, And I do think, to your point about, you know, (laughs) smuggling in larger questions, um, and also, I guess, to your previous question about um, I guess weighting sex too too highly and also in a too low a stance. That's one of the key critiques that I make in the book of like something, a sort of assumption or belief that we are culturally getting wrong. We have this, this paradox, right? Where sex ostensibly is just like this physical thing that you do with each other. You're like high-fiving or it's like skiing, but kind of dangerous, just get consent. <laughs> skiing is also dangerous. Yes. Skiing is extremely dangerous. More people die of skiing. Well, it depends how you define dying sex. of sex. <laughs> I got a concussion the last time I went skiing. Oh, skiing. Um, okay. Oh, I thought that was going somewhere else, but okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> um, but no, like, you know, hit the slopes. Just make sure you like wear a condom and also get consent. Those are the only rules you have to live by. Yeah. But at the same time, On the other hand, we have this thing where like sex means everything, you know, like your sexual identity is one of the main ways you identify yourself, where you like locate your own self and meaning. And having great sex is emblematic of 
being a, like a self-actualized person, a modern man or woman who lives in the world. And in the book, I blame a couple of people for this misconception. Freud being one of them, mm. Hugh Hefner being another. Mm. Um, Freud's the worst. He, he is the, the pits. Yeah. I mean, he's so influential and yet so wrong constantly. And yet all so influential, so discredited, yet still, still so influential <laughs> and yet wrong. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. This is something I talk about in the book. Like Freudian language has infiltrated everything we say and yet it's all crack pottery. But so, so you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, sexual identity as the er identity is a fascinating phenomenon that people just, you know, that's how like the primary identification and more and more. So it feels like that mm -hmm. as, as a, an, a, an aging person, I find really particularly <laughs> alienating at this point. Do you identify as an aging, aging person, person. Yes. more than by your sexuality? Yes, definitely. Wow. It's my primary, my primary identification wow. as an aging person at this point. Um, it's for the next show. But the, the, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, but it's again. You just you 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 hit on something else. And the earlier discussion you and Shadi were having about the uh, the choking episode, right? On the one hand, there's a there's something to porn and how it like gives cues, particularly to guys, but also to women, what they should tolerate, but also guys, what they should be turned on by. Mm -hmm. I don't think like choking was all that widespread as a turn on until it became. Like widespread as something that you know people are watching on the internet, and then they're like, "Well, this is just so." It becomes like this weird sort of play acting. But the the more striking thing is again um, that that question of uh, yeah, like liberalism and the individual and the sort of you can't question that in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's 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 uh, you you mentioned Dan Savage, the the sex columnist, at some point in the book as well. And I remember that was that was always his thing because you guys were talking about you know relationships. You said I made a face when like you know relationships are about making compromises. And I remember Dan Savage used to write about this sort of stuff and say things like, "Well, in fact, uh, you know, when you're with someone, you have to tolerate their kinks. That's part of a relationship. Mm -hmm. That was like a big thing that he always would sort of come back to." And I didn't realize that he'd sort of transitioned away from that in his sort of later writing. I just remember reading Dan Savage back in the day. And that was his big sort of advice mm -hmm. was, you know, if if uh, your partner wants to wear diapers and, and, and you need to change them, well, you know, if you love them, that's the cost of, uh, you know, a, a healthy relationship because we're all weird, you know? Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it is this kind of like weird embedded ethic of toleration okay mm -hmm. but like on the other hand just to piggyback on that there's also like a very different ethic that i think has been the prevailing one since the dawn of time which is that and that's why we have religion in part to regulate things including yeah. sex so i mean what we're talking about this kind of ethic of tolerance of permissibility is relatively recent and it seems to me that um, religions, especially the monotheistic religions, my favorite ones, <laughs> um, that they were, they for a long time are spe were speaking to precisely what Christine is speaking to. They found a way to regulate sex, obviously, and some of those results were not ideal, and some of them Why were not? quite patriarchal. Again. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but but at least if we're talking about the basic impulse that sex is something that has to be, 
managed because of its communal effects. That's an insight that the three monotheistic religions came to a long, long time ago, which makes me wonder, are you trying to, to get back to Demir's inquiry, are you trying to, in a kind of roundabout, backhanded way, smuggle in religion, but without making it precisely about religion? Hmm. Are you telling us to do what religion has told us to do in times past? Okay. Um, wow, that was, <laughs> was a ton of questions at once. Um, let me That's see what if we're I known can, for here. Let me oh, see just, if I can backtrack and take, take whichever chill, one yeah, you yeah, want. We're, yeah. we're having fun at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope you dear readers are too. Readers. <laughs> dear, yeah. Oh, sorry, listeners. <laughs> dear readers of my book, Rethinking Sex, A yeah. Provocation. Um, okay. Uh, a couple things. So just to finish what I was saying to Demir, and actually I will also recommend one review of the book that came out just today as we were recording. It's in City Journal. It's by Tara Isabella Burton, and maybe we can link to it. But she like she just really gets what I was trying to do in the book, I think in some ways almost better than I did myself as I was writing it. Um, but she points out one thing that I think is really true about this approach and what I was talking about with you, Demir, um, that our, the sort of broken sexual culture, our broken approach to sex is just kind of emblematic of a broken approach to interpersonal relationships that is sort of culture-wide. Um, and yes, it's one that's made worse by a culture of liberal individualism. So there's that. Um, Second, I guess the smuggling of, <laughs> am I trying to convert all of my readers to Catholicism? No, <laughs> I am. I am not. <laughs> Unlike Shadi, who's trying to convert everyone to Islam. Yeah, but we all know that Shadi is going to become a Christian. Um, uh, that's just a running joke, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry to Shadi's parents. We could cut that. Oh, well, that's good. Uh, um, anyway. <laughs> So I, I think that there is, and I, so I also wrote a column about, um, radical monogamy hmm. last week. Um, and I make the point in that column that obviously sort of younger generations always feel like they want to, or that they are recreating the world anew and that every realization they have is new and special. So it's not the old monogamy, it's radical monogamy, um, but embedded in that stance is always this sort of weird disconnect with the past. There's this feeling that people in the past were just kind of paper thin and they did things because they were being pushed along by tradition or by religion or by some other stricture and they're kind of flat caricatures and they didn't have any real thoughts. Like they weren't complex. They were just people pulled along by whatever they were told to do. Um, but actually, people were complex in the past, <laughs> and they made choices, right or wrong, based on information that they had and what worked best for them. And some of the things that have, you know, persisted over time maybe did so because multiple people made choices based on what was best for them, and this was one that seemed best to a lot of people. Um, so I think that, you know, in 
in the current moment, it's often very common to be like, well, the past was terrible. Everybody was repressed and dumb and didn't know anything about the sex. The past was awesome. <laughs> um, Said Roger Scruton. <laughs> and it's very true. I, I also want to say that this isn't like a reactionary text, actually. I don't think it's Straussian in that way. I, I want to be clear that I think the sexual revolution was good and the feminist movement was great and meaningful. Um, and a lot of good things have happened. Women's equality, I'm for it. You know, less oppression of minority groups uh, and people of minority orientations, I'm yeah, for it. It's been pretty Let's good. Let's be clear about that. Support. Um, but we don't need to, like, throw the baby out with the bathwater in some ways. Like, it's entirely possible that people had good ideas about sex and how it fit into communities and lives in the past, some of which are embedded in long-running religious traditions, uh, which is why I quote, from, you know, like a lot of different religious traditions in this book as I talk about why we conceive of sex as special, even spiritual, and also what a new and better sexual ethic would look like. There is wisdom there. And if it's there, we should, you know, make use of it. But how do you do a better sexual ethic without the external constraints of religious doctrine? Because if you're telling a secular atheist person who has no concern with some of these older traditions, you're essentially telling them that through the sheer force of willpower and self-discipline that they have to completely reconstitute their understanding of sex. It just seems like that's a hard thing to do if you don't have an overarching framework that allows you to do it. Here's here's just like even a, a piggyback on, on that. You know, I, I, uh, I was struck by Michelle Goldberg's column uh, because she was struck by where you come down on this as well. She said, you, you know, uh, are unduly, I forget, I don't have it in front of me, but like unduly critical or, you know, even maybe condescending to some of the successes of the sexual revolution, which I think you're, from my perspective as a reader, Michelle's wrong, you're right. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, but, <laughs> but it still begs the question of where you draw that line. Because you just said, you know, like uh, you want to accept all the good that's come of it. Um, but where's the, the badness come from? Doesn't the badness come from what Shadi's getting at to a certain extent? The, the sort of dissolution of a lot of this, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a traditionalist myself, so, but traditional stuff is really what we're talking about. So, you know, isn't, isn't there a sense in which you, you know, want the cake and the other shit too? I think that I want to keep cake and shit in two very separate categories. <laughs> I love cake. I don't, don't want like the other. Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but fair enough. Like our our, yeah. our current sexual life is shit. So you want the cake of of uh, you know uh, liberation and liberation as entailed by a lot of liberal projects, and yet you recognize that liberalism some somewhere here. Not only has forced us to uh, into weird situations like your interviewee who feels like she can't even criticize a guy who's choking her, so a level of weird sexual tolerance which is now demanded of people, but also, um, uh, you know, is 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 empowering of of uh, you know uh, this kind of inflation of of sex to a, a level of meaning which we were discussing earlier that maybe it doesn't even deserve. Ah, okay. So how do you how do you square that? Like where's the line of, you know, where the project of liberation 
uh, goes too far and pollutes everything. What if we can't have the bad without the good? So all the good things you mentioned, it may require also accepting the bad. So this is another question I think that speaks to something larger than sex. Yeah. I think this is a question of just the human condition and how we exist in a society with each other. This is sort of the question of pluralism that Shadi, I know that you love. Um, this also reminded me of the question that I forgot in that barrage of questions previously um, about an ethic of total toleration that you should kind of be willing to put up with anything and everything and not criticize any anyone's choices. And I think this is um, part of where Michelle Goldberg perhaps misunderstood me or maybe misunderstood the project. So one of my, one of the chapters in the book, and I'll talk about this and then tack back to this question about where does liberalism end? One of the chapters in the book is titled, Some Desires Are Worse Than Others. Um, and it's basically a statement that, you know, no, not every <laughs> desire is good and should be tolerated. Um, and that, I don't know, it, it sounds kind of harsh, but it's actually not. It, it's kind of an, it's an argument for judgment, judgment, not judgment in the sort of casting someone into the outer darkness forever, but in having an understanding that there is in fact a good, there are in fact ways to be moral and ethical that we should reach for, like higher standards that we can have for ourselves and worse ways to be a person in the world and to each other. So in that chapter, like I use um, a, a kind of extreme example. I don't know if you remember the army hammer phenomenon. I'm going to guess that Demir was not on that. We've actually talked about it in se several chats and people mentioned, I have no idea what the hell people Really? About. Okay. So Army Hammer is this, was, he's still a celebrity. Um, and catch me if you can. Was he in that? Oh, sorry. That's, <laughs> that's Leonardo's. No, no, sorry. My bad. Okay. I think I, what I meant to say is, um, I will, I will call you, call me, call me by your oh, name. Yeah, by <laughs> catch you. Catch me by my catch. Uh, call me by your catch. Um, yeah, a celebrity. And it came out, um, he's married, um, but it came out, I guess, in 2020, maybe. Women came forward, sort of a part of this Me Too phenomenon rolling on, um, saying that he had engaged him in these relationships and was really crazy and abusive, um, that he had a cannibalism fetish, and Who among he, us? <laughs> uh, you know what's me, funny? I don't have that I fetish. literally was about to say that. <laughs> We've been doing this for too long, Please Shani. help get me out of this apartment. You just call an Uber. It's fine. I'm going to... Okay. <laughs> well, guys, if you never hear from me again, um, you'll know why. Yeah, but no, he had this... He had a cannibalism fetish among many other fetishes. Um, he wanted to beat his girlfriends. He, like, branded some of them. He you know, talked about how turned on he would get by murdering them, hurting them, drinking their blood, et cetera. And several of his girlfriends came out and were like, this happened to me and it was so traumatic and terrifying. And I don't know about you, but I think that that's bad. <laughs> um, I think that a fetish for degrading your partners for causing them pain and terror is perhaps worse than a desire to treat your partners well and do good. 
What about that in, cannibal couple in Germany that devoured yeah, each other? I think other? that's bad. What? That happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, it he, seems I think to frequently he, happen he, in he, Germany. Yeah, they, they fried his penis, I think, and then ate it. Again, sorry oh, to weird. the parents. Yeah, no, it's Germany, though. And I mean, and, and but, but see, <laughs> the interesting thing there, though, Christine, though, again, the, the funny thing, I mean, we can get on Germany tangents, and but Germany represents that kind of ultimate toleration of yep. everything right and even they were like this is a bit and they, they yeah they were like okay it's criminal you killed a guy and then ate him but he like consented that's the other funny thing about that right <laughs> right there's there a total like level of consent he was like i want you to kill me and eat me so and he did <laughs> okay so this so this actually gets to a big argument in the book that we haven't like really talked about yet but circling back to army hammer's yeah. minor cannibalism i guess um one of like this was covered in papers and in uh, like women's journals and elsewhere. And weirdly, the criticism, like the only criticism that he seemed to come under was not like, wow, it's crazy that this man loves eating and degrading women. It was like, Army Hammer, you know, it's fine if you have a cannibalism fetish, but Army Hammer did not ask these women for, for consent. consent to participate in his drinking of their blood or whatever it is he was doing. Like that was the only criticism uh, that mass media felt okay levying, you know, well, he didn't get consent to do this objectively insane thing. And that's all we can say about that. And so when I say that I'm interested in bringing judgment back in, in some ways, I think that we should have a higher standard for ourselves and for our sexual activities than, well, did you get permission or not? Like, I think we should be able to talk about whether some states of mind are like better or worse than others, whether there are some things um, that we should question because we they make society worse, they have a bad influence on the people involved. We don't even know what consent to this thing would even but be, how do we, even how? if we had that. And so I, I'm just going to keep going on the consent question because I think this is really important. One of the things that I talk about in this book um, a major thread that runs through it is a critique of consent as the only sexual ethic possible because consent is a legal permission. You know, it's a floor, you know, it's, it tells us what we can do to not commit a felony, which is great. But when it comes to our relationships with each other, um, when it comes to sex, when it comes to honestly, how we walk through the world, I think, I believe that we should have a higher standard for ourselves than I didn't actually commit a felony. When we think about the relationships that we want to have, when we think about the sex that we want to have, and perhaps, as I said before, sex is a stand-in for how we engage with the world in some ways, I think that it is appropriate and would be good for us to have a way of thinking about not just what won't I get in trouble for, but also what would be good, what contributes to the common good, what contributes to my good, and more importantly, perhaps, what contributes to the good of the other person? This is, I propose an ethic of mutuality and care, not just what we can get away with. But how, how do we get there without religion or without tradition? I, so this, I, I come back to this because you're talking about drawing the line and making ethical judgments about what's better than something else but without any kind of ultimate source of good, it's it's going to be arbitrary, dependent on human whims and desires according to time and place. So 
the Army Hammer example is actually pretty clear. I think most people would agree that like his crazy fantasies were beyond the pale. But then if we go to things that are less obvious, where do we draw the line if we're just operating in a completely secular framework? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that we still need to have recourse to um, traditions that uh, that tell us these things or that inform. But see, I don't have to smuggle religion into this. No, Shadi but Shadi'll do, Shadi do it. But but let me even complicate it for Shadi. I see. This is why I think our earlier episode discussing manners is so important, right? And 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 I think manners grounds something in a tradition and mm -hmm. societal expectations that doesn't necessarily require revealed truth. Because for example, what it comes down to is, you know, as you're talking about Army Hammer, who again, like I really wasn't following that at all. But I, you know, I'm I'm plugged in enough to have noticed that that Louis C.K. masturbated in front of some women. Yeah. And 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 that to me, you know, again, within the broad sexual ethic as you describe it in, you know, I think a lot of the interviews in your book is like, well, you know, he's a weird guy and he did ask them, presumably, I didn't even follow how closely that, and maybe there was, I don't even know. He did but, ask, and, he did ask. And, 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 and so I don't know if consent was given, but clearly there's a pattern there where he's asked and he there was consent given. Mm -hmm. But you know, like used to, we used to be like, you know, there's those, those perverts in parks that like take out their 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 genitals and and jerk off in front of people. And okay, so Lucy K's a rich guy, so he doesn't have to do it in parks. But he's like, <laughs> but he's like, you know what I mean? Like it's 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 related. It's a related level of kind of like deviancy, which we used to be like, you're a fucking deviant. Don't yep. fucking do that. And 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 you know what I mean? Like and so I don't. You don't need scripture for that. You just need a certain level of like like. Manners tied to a set of like social consensuses. Mm -hmm. Where did they come from, Demir? Where well, do these manners come from? But like jerking from? off in front of a person okay, that's is not obvious. But what about polyamory? No, okay, no, it's so. not obvious. It's not obvious because like scripture will tell you, you know, uh, well, I guess masturbation is wrong. Maybe that's how you deal with Scripture definitely. De Suggest that masturbating in front of people that you're not well. Wait, no, in front it of <laughs> is that is that in the hadiths? I haven't seen it. Wow, it's certainly yeah. not in, in like. Let's clear. let's link to that text. Yeah, we'll find that look, one. According, look, Muhammad said. The bottom line is that the three major monotheistic traditions would not allow for someone to masturbate in front of other people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not explicitly, though. I'm saying, like, I think it's more it's more interesting to me that, like, actually, it doesn't come directly from religion. It comes from a certain set of of social mores and expectations mm -hmm. that are, you know, loosely grounded to a sense of decency that's grounded in religion. But I don't think necessarily, like, you know, you'll, you're going to find the passage in the Bible that says Louis C.K. is a sinner. Okay, but what about what about some like consensual orgies, like in the movie Eyes Wide Shut? Or Madison like Cawthorns. Oh, I, or I, I really wanted to get to sorry, that at some I'm point. I'm sorry. Tonight. We can. But if all, of all that the orgies that are happening so in Washington like, D.C. If all that's consensual, or, the, or like this, I mean, the silly thing that's become normalized, where you know, um, polyamory, but like modern style, it's like, oh, we have an open marriage, or we're, you know, we can kind of like mess around on the side, but according to these rules and. We have to like notify the other person if it's like if it meets this standard. But I think that meets Christine's sexual ethics standard. Does, I, I mean, I think does so. it? Wouldn't it if like you had a couple that you know were practicing a, some kind of polyamorous thing, and there was a lot of communication involved, and there was no like sense of hurt, and like, it was otherwise caring? That would meet your standard, wouldn't it? Oh, I meant the other way around. What? 
It might not. It might not meet her standard, though, because someone is naturally going to be hurt. The idea that you can have pain-free explorations into weird polyamorous arrangements, and this goes to maybe something we should talk about. And because we are definitely now in the subscribers-only episode, we can <laughs> speak a little bit more openly without fear of persecution or rebuke. Re 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 rebuke. Yeah that um, men and women are different. And you say this, this is not me saying it, you make a very explicit argument. And I think it's, I don't know how controversial it is to say that men and women are not the same. And that difference is something to be appreciated and even celebrated in some sense that, you know, it's okay. But because men and women are not the same in terms of their sexual urges, that has major implications on polyamorous relationships because men benefit and women suffer from those kinds of arrangements. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Again, the like triple quadruple barreled question <laughs> here. Um, backing up, I don't want to leave this behind this question of like, where do we get our judgments from? Because I think this was a really important part of the book for me and sort of trying, because I'm Catholic, but I am also writing, I wrote this book, not for, not for, you know, like fellow Catholics necessarily, or evangelicals or something. Cause that, that's a book that like people know how to write. You write a book about how like you shouldn't have sex until marriage actually. And the sexual revolution was a bad thing. And that was not the book that I was trying to write. Um, I was also trying to write a book that made sense to my friends who are not religious, like secular friends who are living in the world and sense that something is off as much as their religious friends might've sensed it and want to know what to do about it. Um, one of the things that I found though in the book that was really compelling to me was that when you talk to people, when you actually ask them, you know, about their experiences, about how they view the sexual culture, about what they want from it, you get a lot of the same answers, which I think points to something. I think they're, that people, because we're humans with human dignity, who I think are honestly made for connection, made for love, there are some things that we intuit. And so I would ask people, you know, like, what are you, what is, what are you looking for in our sexual? Well, first, like the question, what does sex mean to you? Like, is sex important to you? What what does it signify? And and what makes sex good? This is a question that somebody asked at a launch event. They were like, what are, do you have sex tips? Um, that was at, at the book party. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, nobody ever says, oh, I want somebody to like do it this way or like use their finger a little more, or, like some oh. physical thing. <laughs> totally so, in the bonus episode here. Sorry, parents. <laughs> you know, but people are, people are not, when they ask, when I ask like what they want, from sex and what they want it to look like. Nobody's like, I need a better technique. I need more experiences. What they say inevitably is that like, yeah, sex is meaningful. It signifies like intimacy, connection. Like what really makes sex good is when I feel like somebody is listening, when someone cares. Like there is a story of this woman in the book who I talked to who's describing this like totally out there sexual encounter that she's having. And I will not even, even for parents, it might be a little bit intense. But if it's in the book, I think that you can, you can 
mention it just so people know what you're talking about? I'm talking about the Denmark story. No? Samir, do you remember the Denmark story? Go on. Go go get extra. All right. Okay. We're the, so we're the X-rated part of the, the episode. <laughs> there's this, this woman who is telling me this story about how she is like having a, a oh kind of yes one night amazing stand. story amazing story <laughs> there, I'm sorry I need to Demir, find that Demir quote. will tell it that quote yeah. that quote uh, you had like oh man where's my copy of the book it's, uh, it's on the table because it, 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 it had it had like here pass that that thing to me find the chapter I'll find the quote it had like the best sort of wordsmithing remember she's she's having a philosophical debate uh, in the midst of anal sex you remember that story. oh. Sh- Okay, yes, I do remember that. That was <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I said for parents. I forgot yeah. about that. I was trying to help one. you out. Yeah. God, there was such a good turn of phrase in there. Anyway, uh, but continue on, Christine, while I find the turn of phrase because uh, I read that that section. I read the audiobook. You should get the audiobook. No, no, no. But but the 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 what I what I wanted to ask you though still is is um, on on the question of ethic. Um, I take your point. You know, the ethic is one of caring. So. But is that really what it comes down to then? That that uh, there's a there's an embedded um, selfishness in Louis C.K.'s act that mm-hmm. doesn't qualify. Yeah, and that's it. That's what it boils down to. That's where we draw the line. So it's selfishness versus versus like the possibility of mutual caring. In some ways, yes. So <laughs> to explain this story that we're all like losing it over, um, there is a woman I'm talking to who is describing this one night stand that she's having um, with this guy who is, <laughs> Tamir is just sitting in a chair laughing I right found, now. I found the phrase. I'm sorry. It's mid-ass sex exhortation to love. That's the phrase. Yes. I Brilliant. am a writer. My favorite, my favorite phrase in the book. She's having sex with this guy. Um, and she talks about how she made the mistake of like asking this guy, are you going to think less of me because I'm having anal sex with you? Yeah. Or you're having anal sex with me on a, you know, and I, I don't know who you are. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, it's not a big deal. This isn't about anything. This is about lust. And she has this reaction where she says, okay, but it's not just about lust. Can we not just love each other for a single day, a single moment, which is right now. And this is what so many people said in maybe not quite so extreme a circumstance, but all, pretty much, no, everyone I talked to really at some point got to the point in our conversation when they were talking about what a better sexual world um, and better sex would look like. And it is about love and connection and care for each other. And so I think that there is an intuition there that the majority of people share um, that many of them feel and have told me that they kind of feel forced to hide because of almost cultural pressures, whether it's this idea that actually caring is uncool, it's better to be the cool girl, like a chill guy, um, or that sex actually, having lots of sex shows that you're a good feminist and a modern woman or man or any other reason. They they have hidden that feeling in themselves, but they they know that it's there. And I think that was, this is something that came out across sex, across age range, people of various faith and religious backgrounds or none at all. Almost everyone kind of got to this point in conversation. And so I think that that points us towards something and can maybe orient us towards a goal of some sort. And then 
you know, I suggest that instead of consent, which is just a really low bar standard, you know, we have to ask ourselves for something more than what consent asks of us. You know, we, it is our responsibility to ask ourselves, I think, not just did I get permission for this, but, you know, what, what do our partners really need? What does sex even mean? What should our standards be? Is this thing that I'm doing even good in the first place? And so I suggest the standard of willing the good of the other, um, which is Aristotle by way of St. Thomas Aquinas. And that means willing your partner's good as much as your own. So yes, selfishness is a problem here. And this would implicate you in not being selfish and caring about the other person. And it also implies though, that you have to come to an understanding of what the good is and how to pursue it. And I think that that is a question where we all have intuitions, but that on a societal level, you know, we have to just talk about to get anywhere. Even in a pluralistic society, we at least have to be able to put that question on the table to ask what we should be judging and why. And there are many ways in which, you know, the process of making judgments can go off the rails. And we've seen that in the past. Um, but even asking that question, how do I be good to another person? What is ethical, not just what is permitted, is several steps ahead of where we are now. And when we ask that in conversation with others in public, we can make our assumptions corrigible. You know, we can allow ourselves to be corrected. And if we do so with empathy in willing the good of the other and being aware how sort of shaming and judgments can be used to harm often the most marginalized people, then we have the mindset where we're thinking of how to actually be good in a broader sense. Of course, this is always, I think, this is a continuing dialogue and a, and a continuing problem. But I think, you know, I wrote Rethinking Sex and subtitled it A Provocation not to make people upset or angry. Like I'm not provoking people for fun to make them mad. But because one of the things that I felt after the Me Too moment is that so many people came to the conclusion of, oh yeah, sex, still still bad. Like, mm, we're in this place where we thought it was fixed, but it wasn't. Man, this sucks. But we hadn't moved the conversation forward to talk about, okay, well, why does it suck? What do we want it to look like? And how do we get there? And to make any change, to make society better, like we have to be able to have that conversation with each other and in public. And yes, bringing into it what we've learned from tradition, what we've learned from experience, awareness of what society looks like now um, and what we want it to look like and being aware of each other. And I think, sorry, I'm just, I'm on a roll now. No, no, no keep yeah. going. Yeah, go. <laughs> keep going, but but I, I, I'm, I'm, I've got my... My Keep ammunition going, ready, though. No, I've got ammunition <laughs> ready, so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow, hang There on. was some I, natural law there. There probably... There might have been. Okay. Um, no, but... Don't but, wait. Hey, there, right. Go on, finish, finish. <laughs> you, 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 you stopped yourself. Neither Shadi or I stopped you on this one. Keep going. I don't think that's true. Um, okay. It is Where, true. The record says. Oh, no. No, I was interrupted in... Anyway... Now Don't worry, it'll come back. It'll, it'll come, come back, back in a moment. Again. Look, yeah. just ponder it. But um, I like that there was some natural law, Catholic style, kind of smuggled in there. 
about Why how there are a smuggler. No, there but are certain he, intuition. There are certain intuitions that are uh, inscribed. That's upon not what us, she's saying. The that's naturalistic not, assumptions about human nature. No, she's she's all, a radical Democrat. What? That's that's what? the Wait, thing. What? That, that's what jumped out at me on this. And this Wait, is actually. Democrat. I mean, but honestly, this this is the other question that's sort of been haunting me throughout this whole thing. Is this this notion of of talking about it, mm-hmm. and that talking about it you know, some sort of Habermasian discourse will like get us to to like actual progress. I, I really disagree with that fundamentally. That's like a fundamental principle. And it, it comes up a lot in your book is like, we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And by talking about it, we will discover the good maybe together mm-hmm. through guided perhaps by sort of, you know, uh, religious principles. But again, this is why I'm not a Democrat. Like I don't, I don't really buy it. And I mean, like, you know, party either. Like ultimately I just don't buy that progress comes through this kind of like social discourse, um, but I don't know, Shadi, do you buy it? Like you're you're a you're you're hard bitten Democrat on on like most things. You think democracy is like the core <laughs> thing that that like actually? <laughs> okay, I, well, that's not how I interpreted her comment. I was not thinking radical Democrat. I was thinking. Isn't she though? <clears throat> what is she saying? I was saying Catholic theories of natural law. But she's talking about, let's talk about it. She's like, we need to together come together. Oh yeah, but what's wrong with talking about it? She wrote a book because she wants us to talk about it. Well, so one thing I'll jump in really quickly and say here, part of the talk about it conversation that I think is important goes back again to this question of sex as a synecdoche for larger things. Yeah. Um, So we often in the modern era talk about sex as a very, as a personal thing. It's our personal identity Nobody can judge us for this. Like our desires are paramount and like this is an individual mm-hmm. issue for us. Yeah. And I think a big overarching argument in the book is that that's not really the case. You know, we, we've become accustomed to viewing ourselves as sort of isolated individuals and just seeing other people as like instruments that can give us something, whether it's sexual pleasure or even, yeah, emotional connection or financial stability or something else. And I think that that is incorrect, an incorrect understanding of the human person because we exist in community, we exist as a society and our encounters are mutual. And so when I say that we should talk about this in conversation with with society, part of what I'm saying is that we have to, yes, get away from this idea of this liberal individualism, this atomization where we are the only thing that matters and we are paramount and recognize that we live in in mutuality with other people and that that is important. And if that's the case, then other people have to be involved in our discussion of, you know, sort of what things are for. And then also the case, like being aware of, yes, the past. And I think I don't, I didn't, maybe I didn't get into the problems of the past enough in this book for certain critics. Um, and I guess I didn't. Um, but we are very aware that when decisions are just made by some, like one random person in a tower somewhere or made on a hierarchical scale, that it's often the case that marginalized groups and other people just get left out. Their experiences aren't taken into account. And I mean, I'm a, I hate it when people do this and they're like, well, as a black person, but I mean, as a black woman, like I, it's very easy for me to imagine cases of like judgments being handed down that just marginalize certain groups, groups that I would have been in. And I think that we have to have these conversations as a society in order to take into account the experiences of other people and care for those people in a real way. 
Um, so that's that. But back to Shadi's oh. point. I just wanted to make oh, that clear. Another? No, it's, no, it's that it's it's your turn. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, men and women, and to what extent they're fundamentally different. I I mean, I think that you you. I I don't think we. I think it's worth kind of addressing that head on. Mm -hmm. But I will say that if we're talking about the past, if we did self-reported happiness surveys like four or five centuries ago, my guess is that there would be a lot of people who would report higher levels of happiness than what we have now under modern liberal democracies. That's not to say that modern, I mean, I'm, I love democracy and I think it's far preferable to anything that we've had prior. That said, it's interesting that happiness doesn't necessarily, like happiness is a very kind of subjective and elusive idea. And it's completely about what a given person is thinking at a particular moment. And because we have such high expectations of what we should have in our lives in modern society, we're inevitably, inevitably going to be less happy, less content because we want so much from life. And that's probably a good thing but it may mean that self-reported happiness could have been better in the past. I just want to put that out there as like yeah. a little aside. So, okay, putting a pin in the gender question. So I think that's important tonight. I will get back to that. One of the, in the chapter, we're liberated, but we're miserable. One of the things I talk about is how, you know, we tell ourselves that in the past we were repressed and there were too many standards and it made everybody really sad. Um, and now we're free. Nobody is looking at us. Nobody is judging our sexual encounters. We can do like whatever we want to do. And we think, because this is our sort of societal understanding in the modern day, that again, more freedom makes things better. That should have made us happier. And yet the contradiction here is that we're liberated, but everybody does not seem happier. In fact, a lot of people feel lost and frankly saddened. And I would argue that actually in some ways structure is good. You know, one of the problems I think we saw after the Me Too movement uh, and in talking to men for this book, this came up frequently and talking to therapists who talk to men, um, that there's so little structure almost that people don't know what they should be doing or what they are allowed to do. And faced with that, they just like don't do anything at all. And I talked to one ethicist, Fanny Bialik, who I love, who gave the analogy of a dinner party where, you know, the thing that's great about dinner parties is that you go into it kind of knowing what you're going to get. It's a dinner party. You have food and utensils, but there is still space for the unexpected. And that leaves room for a frisson of excitement. But because it's structured, you feel fairly safe in that setting. You might meet interesting people and have great conversations or something, you know, might happen, but you're pretty sure no one's going to stab you with a dinner knife or something so you can relax. And it feels like to many people, I think that perhaps day, and also if something does happen, you can say what was wrong and why, like, this person stabbed me with a dinner knife and it sucked because being stabbed hurts. And also that's not what you do at dinner parties. This is crazy. Whereas for many people, I think in the dating world, it feels like they're just, all the rules are off. There's no structure to what's going on. So if something happens to you, you can't be like, this is bad because this is not supposed to happen. You just feel yourself like, I feel 
bad about this, but I like can't explain why. I guess I consented to it, so I don't have any right to feel bad, but it hurts. And that contributes to almost a dysphoria, like a disbelief in the self and your own experiences that is really psychologically traumatic. But how do you, Christine, it's striking to me again. How do you, how do you square it? Um, how do you square the uh, society that needs to talk about it to come to consensus, mm -hmm. to be inclusive, uh, presumably exhorted by you to be more caring, but never mind. Like it's just a book. Like it's it's not going to change the world. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know oh, what I mean? Man. You know oh, what I mean? Demir. Demir. No, you no. know what I mean. You know what I mean? No. no, but it's a serious question. No, but seriously, Christine. I'm crying now. <laughs> I know you are. But listen, but but seriously, uh, how do you square that with what you just said about like the importance of of levels of sort of again, I think there's a real tension there between like I think a a a very optimistic sense of like structuring society through mm -hmm. dialogue. That leads to a kind of inclusivity. And then on the other hand, a sense of censure and the importance of it. And I feel like the 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 part that I don't find convincing is that like if only you accept certain kind of ideas about, you know, I don't know, compassion, mm -hmm. you can you can bridge that. I'm not sure I think, I, I, it doesn't feel like it works. I think what you're getting at is the idea that when I say that there should be that we as a society need to talk about and come up with standards and norms. Inevitably, there are in a society is also made up of individuals, and some individuals will probably feel left out by the norms that are embraced by a broader society. Like we set up norms, and there's a general consensus that, you know, cannibalism as a kink is not like one that we should smile upon. In the so, US, anyway. <laughs> go to Germany if you yeah. want to do that. Um, yeah. And so there will be some sad cannibals, I guess, who right. just don't get to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, but cannibalism is the easy case. That's why no, I like, yeah. you know what cannibalism, I mean? Like cannibalism is the easy case. Um, and I think that's why I talk about norms being corrigible um, and sort of related to the broader society that more people have an input into them, not less. So they aren't necessarily handed down by a patriarchal society or whoever has the most power in a hierarchy, but more people have the opportunity to contribute to them so that they can be as fair as possible. That said, I think that there will still be people who could be left out. And that is always the case in the society. And it's and, okay. And this is also... This is why I, I also they don't think, deserve anything. I mean, cannibals oh, wow, don't. Dang. No, no, no. But well, like, no, no, cannibals no, don't. And then <laughs> let's let's move the line down. Cannibals like jerk offs, perhaps don't either. So, okay. So this is part of the reason why I also state in the book that this is a a kind of social question that we have to discuss among ourselves, and why sort of consent the a sort of legal framing that relies almost on the carceral state, <laughs> basically, mm -hmm. and, you know, legal movements to enforce things is not a good enough mechanism here. Sure. Because we know what it looks like when people get cut off by, <laughs> you know, the police for doing something wrong. Like, we know what that looks like, and it's not good. Um, and I think as a society, like talking about this amongst ourselves, there is there are better ways, which is not to say perfect ways, for creating norms and manners 
and in some ways, sometimes using judgment and shame, which is not always a bad thing because sometimes people feel ashamed because they've done something bad and they should feel ashamed. It's literally the whole point of shame. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> you know, like when a, we like say a that- C.K. line. Well, <laughs> the whole point of shame is to feel bad. Well, when we say, you know, when people are like, oh, you're judgmental and that's terrible. It's like, well, no, actually I'm judgmental because like I have an understanding of what is good and what is bad. And like, I, I want to keep that understanding. Um, I think that having a flexible and more corrigible societal understanding of some of these things that can sort of be tweaked with consensus to include or not include some things is healthier than handing it over to the state to decide. But yes, there will, I think, be people whose desires are not fully accommodated by the society. And in that case, I think we can also still ask questions like, are there are there desires that are good and are there desires that are bad? And we can have arguments about them but or what that means or what they are. But I think it's important to just be able to talk about that in public. And I think one of the things that's missing and why this is a provocation is because I'm suggesting that we should have that conversation. We should be able to talk about that and not be afraid to, you know, have morality in the public square. But but doesn't this kind of relate to the analogy with capitalism that in a free market of sex and dating and relationships, inevitably there will always be losers. And there's nothing that we can do unless we have some kind of regime to manage, regulate, and distribute sex, which I think no one or the vast majority of people are not going to be okay with. So you have this situation where, um, and I'll just, like, there's two quotes that I want to mention here, because you you were alluding to this, that guys don't really, some guys don't really know how to operate Uh, in this free market space. Sex question, right? Yeah, it's crazy stuff. And I rolled my eyes when I read this, because I'm like, Okay, guys, like, let's not go too far here. This is silly. But um, so maybe- You're saying this, is this a, to your fellow man? Yeah, uh, you know, guys. talking to guys. Yeah. Come on, come guys. On, guys. Yeah, yeah. Guys, come on, guys. <laughs> so someone's talking about guys. Maybe it's a guy. Maybe it's a therapist who talks to guys. But this person says, quote, unquote, these guys, guys. are just not flirting, not even asking anyone out, not doing anything. They're just paralyzed with fear. And then a therapist says, quote unquote, men in their 20s are terrified and they talk about it a lot. And I'm like, I'm like, come on, let's, uh, this is getting silly. Like you can still ask a girl out. Like that is not crossing any red lines. You are allowed to do that. Like, let's not take this too far. But it it does get to, I think, a situation where there are some guys, i.e., um, the losers of the free market, if we want to use, again, the capitalism analogy, who feel like they cannot succeed in this dating space. And you know what? At some level, that's okay because not everyone can be equalized in this regard. Not everyone is going to get fairness in dating. So when we think about, and this does relate, I think, to broader questions around justice. If we think about it, from a Rawlsian standpoint, Good fairness, Lord. you know, fair, <laughs> you know, fairness as justice in dating, there may not be fairness and there may not be justice and there, and there shouldn't necessarily be that. Ah, the Rawlsian God. framework. That's how we always want to think about that. Now we're going to go another hour as a result <laughs> of this. Well, no, actually, I think this circles back to a question that, um, that Tamir was hinting at 
early on and that kept being overtaken by other questions, which is the a critique that I make, although maybe it comes across, maybe it's maybe it feels like it's smuggled in, but I thought it was actually, you know, I hoped it would be kind of a top line thing. Um, a critique of the idea that sex is the be all end all of life. So, you know, we asked the question like, why did, why is this book about sex if it's about larger things? And it's because sex was the way into talking about these questions. And also sex is really important to people. It's a big or minor, or it's, it's a part of every, almost every person's life. It's something that we think about. It's a way that we structure society. But I also, um, in this book, I think I'm pushing back on the idea, the Freudian idea, in fact, the almost very modern Hugh Hefnerian playboy idea that having sex specifically and having as much sex as possible is like the most important thing in life, the ultimate goal in life, that sex is the best thing that's ever happened to anyone. And you'll like die and be an unfulfilled person if you're not having as much sex as you want. Like nobody's ever died from not having sex. That's just, it, I'm sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And I think that we also need to think about what we center our lives around and what we think of as most important to us. You know, one, there is, you know, maybe this understanding that sex is the most important thing in life, but should it be sex or is it actually our relationships with other people? Again, this mutuality, these interpersonal relationships. And I think one of the things that is alarming maybe to you, Shadi, when you talk about people being left, some guys just like failing in the sexual marketplace or being left out of sex. I think that sex is something that almost everyone desires and wants. Like it is a it is a physical activity that's extremely pleasurable and you know people want that. But is there something higher to orient ourselves around than fulfilling our physical desires? Should sex be the one thing at the top of the pyramid? Should it be the case that if somebody is not having sex, they should feel like their life is over or that they're not a real person. I actually want to push back against that understanding of sex as the only meaningful thing in life or the most meaningful thing or the thing that we have to have to be defined as people. It's so, ahistorical, isn't it? What is? This modern conception of sex. It is ahistorical. It's completely yeah, ahistorical course. in the sense that like, I mean, you know, it was in... in Again, uh, you're you're much more versed in this, I think, uh, because of your research. But it always struck me that you know, you you go back to the kind of the role sex played in, in cementing relationships before in in sort of pre-modern times, right? Uh, or even in, in in the time of chivalry. It's it's okay. Sure, you had knights who were louts and and did uh, things to maids and things like that. And maybe you get the, the brutality of the transactional sex in that like trans class level. But, you know, the, the, the even the, the ideal of, of romance was one where, you know, sex was withheld and, and would then almost like sacrally, you know, maybe if it was consummated would somehow cement something, but it wasn't the, the source of the thing. The thing was something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and uh, it's a really weird modern thing that we've supplanted it. Yeah. No, I, I actually agree. I mean, I guess that's, yes, this is a, a thing that I want to, I guess, provoke upon or raise, raise questions about. Like, why is it in fact good that we have centered 
sex as the thing that defines us and also what what does it mean when we say that or when we believe that sex is the most important thing in life because really when you know Louis CK is like well I just I needed like I needed this this is my kink I just had to have it yeah. what he's saying is that like my physical desire trumped my responsibility to care for these people trumped my like responsibility to act as a normal member of society was more important than my responsibility to others, my responsibility to some higher good. And I don't actually think that that's a good thing. I think that sex, you know, is important and is meaningful for people and it is something that we want, but our physical desires are not everything. And I don't think that we should tell ourselves that they are because then that really keeps us from thinking of ourselves as humans with human dignity, who can look to a higher standard and look for a good that's not just based in ourselves and our physical feelings, but in something larger. I guess really what it comes down for me is like, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, I don't have an answer. I feel like you're trying to provide an answer for how to get things better. I think just like in general, I'm a pessimist and, and, and things like that sort of end up defaulting to that. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure you can build that kind of consensus towards a more wholesome future through discussion. I guess that's really what it comes down to. That's my, my main objection to the, the thesis of it. I mean, uh, I think there's discussion. I think discussion is then codified into norms. I guess maybe this is a question. Yeah, I think that there, I think that discussion is just the first step. And I think for there to be discussion, we have to be honest with each other yeah, and yeah. make claims, like truth claims about what sex means, what we want from each other, what we define the good to be. Um, and I, then I think often discussion is codified firmly or weakly into norms. And I actually do think that norms and standards go a long way towards helping people, especially younger people. I will also say this, many of the people who I talk to in the book, like younger people are figuring it out and older people I talk to are like, well, I, I felt that I had to like go through this whole gauntlet of like hookup culture and like getting used to being choked and all this stuff to finally come to this obvious conclusion. And I wish there was some structure that would have helped me get here faster before I had all these sad and defeating experiences. And I think codifying some structures and norms and giving people something to, some recourse for their objections or their feelings or hopes or fears is helpful in getting them there earlier. But yeah, this I, is a, you know, this book is a provocation. Yeah, it's not a yeah. prescription. No, sure. And <laughs> I feel like this was a very first, first book mistake for me. You know, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write a book about sex and we're just going to fix sex. And my editor was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and no, nobody who's written a book before, like no second book author, and I'm sure Shadi, you can maybe back me up on this, would willingly tie themselves to a mast like that. <laughs> um, but in the course of writing this book, I mean, I realized like, I don't have the answers. And I'm very honest about how many parts of this book were in fact hard for me to write because it's re it's really easy to critique what other people are doing. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, actually there is a, I'm 
pointing out the speck in someone else's eye and there's like a beam in my own. Like, I don't know that I have the answers, but conversation and honesty about what's really going on is the first step to getting anywhere. And to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, one of the things that I felt so strongly about that pushed me to want to write about this topic and think about it more was the fact that so many women and men related to these horrible stories felt that the culture was painful and harmful to them. And yet didn't, they felt like they were alone. Like they were the only people who were, who felt something was off, that they were the only people struggling and they thus didn't feel like they could talk about it, Mm. that they had recourse to conversation, that there was anything that they could do. They felt kind of like they had to give up and that this was the way it is. And yet everyone goes to therapy and just talks about it all the time, right? Yeah, but I mean, the point of therapy and talking about it in therapy is to get ideas of what you can do and enact in the real world. Some therapists are not good at giving these, let's be clear. But like the idea is that you talk about it and figure out what's going on so that you can then enact change in your own life and how you relate to things. And I think having the conversation and saying like, yes, there is a problem. What have we gotten wrong? Is the first, like you have to identify that before you can go to then what do we do about it? And I would hope that this book is a a provocation to that conversation, to the first step on figuring out what's next. So here's one problem with that. I mean, like intellectually, we can come to the conclusion that some things are right and good. So when we listen to our therapist and he or she gives us- Our therapist. Demir and Shadi have the same therapist. (laughs) It's me. Demir actually, I don't think needs a therapist. I, I've never, I've never been to one, and I, I yeah. No. <laughs> there you go. But you know, I think, and as someone who's been listening to a lot of happiness podcasts as as of late, I think there's like a fundamental gap where there's things that you know would be good for you, and like you know it. No one has to persuade you of that fact. But the society around us, the environment around us pushes us to go against what we know would be in our own Mm -hmm. interest, not in in a material sense, but our interest in a spiritual sense, in the sense of what gives us the most fulfillment. So we are stuck in this world that doesn't allow us to be our better selves. And this to me is the fundamental wall that we all hit. We, I think we know intuitively what makes us happy. Yeah. And that's why I don't know if there's a really good answer to a lot of these things. Society is not organized in a way that encourages us to find our highest good. And I don't, and again, I don't think debate gets us closer to it. This is my pessimism. That's my whole well, point. But again, I understand your point. I, I, I take everything you've said, Christine. I mean, I, I, I get it. No, I, I'm I, just not convinced. I, yeah, no, I, I get that. And I think that, Shadi, I think that point is really interesting. And I also think it shows a bit of a defeatist mindset. I mean, And I guess I'll circle back to Demir's point here. Um, You say that we all know what's good for us intuitively and society makes it 
society is not oriented towards helping us to be good. I think there are a couple assumptions embedded in that statement, actually, that maybe conversation helps us question. So again, in talking to people for this book, one of the other interesting phenomenons I observed is that actually many people have not thought about the good or their intuitive understanding of the good. Like when I would ask, okay, well, so you you had this sexual experience or, you know, one person was like, well, I, you know, I'm like, I hooked up with this guy and I hooked up with that guy. And like, I've had these experiences where, you know, it, it felt bad or, or weird or uncomfortable, but I just like did it because I don't know, for the story. And when I asked the question, okay, but so why? Like, what's the story here? Or what do you actually want to get out of sex? Like, where do you think this is taking you? Actually, a lot of people had not thought about that. They had not stopped to think about what they were doing and what it meant. You know, there was a girl I I talked to who I mentioned in the book who, you know, described ordering a guy from Tinder, Mm. you know, like a Tinder delivery. And I'm like talking to her about this and what that means. And later on in the conversation, she says, you know, I don't, I don't really know I said that. I guess that's actually, that's a weird way to talk about someone. You know, that's actually a pretty bad mindset to have. And so I actually think that conversation can be helpful because just bringing these questions up, what is sex for? What does it mean? What do we want from it? These are questions that often we're not encouraged to ask ourselves. What is it for? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I ask, I ask in the shadow of Shadi's religion question because the answer is, is, is clear in some traditions. It's for procreation. Yeah. So, and so what's it for? Yeah. So, (laughs) Um, hang on. I'm, I'm trying to catch my train of thought from the last question. Derailed. Yeah. You're really doing this. Um, yeah. So I think, sorry, I will get back to that, but actually I think Shadi's question is really pertinent and yeah, really important. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that actually conversation is key because a lot of people actually don't ask themselves these questions. Like even if they have an intuition of what they want, there's a difference between feeling something and actually concretizing it in your mind and then being able to move towards it. And that shift is actually really important. Then you say that, you know, society doesn't encourage us to be good. And I think that's really true. But I also think that, again, I don't think that individual autonomy should be our entire goal, but also we're human beings. We're not animals. We're not totally directed by society. We can choose to be better than we are. We'll fail a lot, of course, but we can work towards being more courageous towards virtue. We can work towards having more temperance or more prudence. If we want better sexual relationships in some way, we can try and practice what we want. And, you know, when I talk about a better ethic, the ethic of willing the good of the other, it's a high bar. And, it's under like one would understand that we would fail a lot of the time, but even in trying to be better and failing, that's still several steps ahead of not trying at all and just being saying, well, society, like 
I can't do anything about it. I mean, don't get me wrong. We should definitely try and, you know, at the risk of failure. But I think that some of these insights and intuitions, they're inscribed in our hearts. I think that they are like, we know, I think that sometimes people won't acknowledge that they know these things, but it, in some ways, if they are God's creation and God instilled upon us certain virtues or instincts or intuitions that they are deep within us somewhere if we can find them. But I think it's also like putting aside God, even if, you know, if folks don't believe in God, I think we also know empirically that the Tinder delivery is never going to make us happy. If you ask anyone, do you think that this is going to give you the fulfillment that you desire? No one will say yes, because we know that it won't based on experience. So some of this is also just a fact of reality. So we, I think most people know if you ask them, if you have a lot more sexual partners, I think that if you push people, they know deep down, that's not going to make them happier. Let me, let so, but the reason, but the reason that I think people pursue those things is because life is difficult, life is painful, and people are looking for ways to dull the pain. That's depressing. No, well, but, but, no, I, I just want to get back to the third part of this argument, I think, um, is where I do think that conversation comes into play with society. I think the more that we are able to first recognize within us, in some ways by conversation, these intuitions and what they point us towards, um, recognized by, you know, talking to each other and pushing ourselves individually to be good, what would help us get there? I think that as we do that, and as more people are able to do that, we can, we are also the individuals who make up a society. We can critique and in some ways help to create our society. You know, there are, we, it's not, I guess we we co-create this world in some ways for ourselves. If we decided that, you know, pornography was actually really bad for us um, or dating apps were really bad for us, and that's like a conclusion that we came to as a society, theoretically, I think we could come to a place where there were standards and norms where we would say, okay, well, as a group, like we're not we're not gonna date people who are totally porn addled. And that could actually affect change. Or if we were to push back against some of these norms that we've been given, whether it's like dating apps or something else and say like, actually, this isn't, this isn't a good thing for us. We don't really like it anymore. If enough people do that, that helps to create change as opposed to sort of rolling over and being like, well, this is what I've been fed. So, you know, I have to, I have to go for it. And I think, you know, one area that's maybe anecdotal, but where I do feel like I'm seeing some hope is actually, it was a lot of the younger people who I talked to who said to me, yeah, like dating apps kind of suck. I'm actually trying to meet people through friends or like my friends put together this goofy matchmaking service over email or something else. And I'm going to do that instead. Hmm. And because enough people have thought through their lives, they were able to get together and co-create something that could maybe be healthier for them, that could actually create a society, maybe a smaller society that does help them, help channel them towards something better than what they've been given. 
But again, I think you have to get there first by perhaps recognizing those internal intuitions, by practicing them in your own life, and also by being courageous enough to try and do things on your own, to go against the grain. If there are a lot, if there are enough people who are having this conversation and coming to these conclusions with you, then yeah, I think there is momentum to change. If we go back to the Me Too movement, for instance, you know, society theoretically seemingly was not ready. Um, society was not willing to accord women the respect that they wanted. But I think enough women recognized that this was what was happening to them was wrong. Um, and then co-created with other people the society that they wanted and actually did affect some level of change. And that did happen. And that was people who did that by not saying, well, I just like, I give up, it's too hard, but having in some ways the courage of their convictions and the courage in virtue to follow it through. And courage is a virtue and it's one that we just have to cultivate in the same way that we cultivate prudence, that we cultivate temperance. It's something that we have to work on and that's difficult. But again, also, what do we want from ourselves? What do we want from life? So, so I love everything that you just said. And so let me let me put the turd Thanks, in the punch Shadi. bowl to 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 maybe to maybe wrap us up on this because I, I feel like I'm listening to two people who are winding themselves up about virtue and values and things like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, virtue. And that's fine. I'm sorry. Please cut that. That was horrible. No, Wait, you don't like that? Was that was an amazing call? To, I'm. No, but but I but but here let me let me puncture but that it. in the let me oh, try and the puncture free it. episode. But let me try and puncture it though. Um, I don't know what are the statistics for uh, uh, marital infidelity at this point. I think okay. I think part of the part of the reason I ask that is is um, the extent to which I feel like a lot of this discussion today we've had and a lot of obviously your book is is about people who haven't settled down yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think an implicit thing there is like an ethical sex, which is with the right partner and like a, a level of sort of caring and the rest of this. But I think you're just like actually in many ways, one kicks the can down the road. And this gets down to the, the question is like, you know, what I was saying earlier, I, I don't I don't I don't have an answer to how to regenerate society. But I, I do think that the the you know, what's been lost is a is a kind of censure against mm-hmm. against behavior. And I, I, I still don't believe that one can get to this through dialogue and through like, you know, common uh, discussion of the, of the good. And, and really what it comes down to is like why I bring up sort of marital infidelity is like, I, I don't think that most people, you know, you, you end up in this next thing and then you're faced with a whole nother slew of things, which are actually analogs to the bullshit you face in the pre-marriage thing. Shadi doesn't like to hear this. He always says that marriage is inviolate and like nothing bad happens mm-hmm. there. But I've never said that. <laughs> <laughs> For yourself. But 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 uh but but it's one of those things I think it's just like, you know, marriage is a different kind is a different kind of yeah. permutation on the hell of dating, quite frankly. No, so I think no, I think that's a really good point. I think that's important. Um, and, and and so so all I'm getting at is that like you guys worked yourselves up to like a question of like building virtue and creating this through dialogue and 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 et cetera. Shadi and I are high fiving over a stack of Qurans and Bibles right yeah, now. Yeah, no, that's yes. fine. But that's fine. But 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 I guess you know what I, the the thing I'd want to maybe inject here towards the end is is this one question of and you know you've you 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 mentioned it in the book you you mentioned this podcast a certain kind of human condition and a certain mm-hmm. kind of fallenness to this. Yeah. And and. 
and you know, I think there's a there's a level of accepting while not uh, while not admitting it into the norm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is what it is. It's accepting a certain kind of inability to transcend it. And I think the one way that one properly accounts for the horror of the human condition is to actually have extra, you know, uh, individualistic censure. Now, how one gets to that censure is a good point. And once we've destroyed culture's ability to censure things, I guess we fall back on this idea of, of dialogue and we have to build norms that way. I'm not convinced that those norms count for anything, um, that one can build them through dialogue and rational discourse. I just, I, I, I'm not convinced. And, and so we're left with, I think, fallenness and an inability to censure that which is bad. So, interesting. Okay. Well, when I talk about conversation, I think one thing that I should be more clear about is I'm not actually necessarily just interested in conversation for the sake of conversation, you know, that that just people chatter along forever. I think when I talk about conversation, the point of this conversation is to actually recreate standards that we agree upon as a group today. So in some reason that, in some ways that the point of that conversation is to create the norms that fit us and popularize them. You know, like when I say conversation, I'm thinking of enough women getting together and saying, oh, hey, this thing, like you've been choked too? We've all been choked here? We all thought it was just us, but this is a very common thing. No, we we don't do that. We can agree as, as a society that that's not an okay thing to do. And that may be a new norm that we come to. And thus, that is a way to, in some way, yeah, provide censure and create lines that, you know, are replicable and that people then have resource to. So I'm not just talking about like babbling on for fun. Like no one has, some people have time for that. I Uh, guess that's what we're doing right now. We're doing this for the last two hours here. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I think there is, there is a point to the conversation. That's the key. And I think what I'm saying when I say this is a provocation, not a prescription, is that I have certain ideas for what the good would look like or what standards should be. But I also accept that I am one person, that I could be wrong, and I could I could be wrong. It's possible, but not um, likely. <laughs> uh, improbable, but possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that because I'm part of a society, I should also check and test myself against other people with different, perhaps better understandings. Like that's what the conversation looks like: building to something in a healthy way with more input rather than less input. So that's. When I say that we need to have a conversation, I'm saying that that's a first step to something else. And then, yeah, you know, this is actually a, it's funny that it comes from you because this was like a really, one of the most popular, like most shared tweets in response to the essay excerpt from the book, Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sexual Ethic, was from this evangelical pastor who was like, have you ever heard of marriage? And immediately, women and men just got into his mentions and were like, marriage doesn't solve these problems. Like, Mm. marriage doesn't get away with questions of misogyny or abuse or patriarchal conventions. Like, marriage is just another space in which these can fester, sometimes even a worse space because it's, again, very closed and not corrigible, not shared. And yeah, I think that when I talk about 
how to have more ethical sex. And I suggest that willing the good of the other is a good norm and that it might mean having less sex because you have to get to know your partner, maybe, um, to actually will their good. I think it's also possible to have ethical sex um, in a one-night stand or a shorter relationship. I think it's maybe not as plausible or not as common. And that's why people tend to be far more, and the research bears this out, far more disappointed, especially women, by one night stands than they are in relationships where the person actually knows them, cares about them, and like cares about their pleasure and what they want. Um, but marriage is another space in which, yes, we exercise the human condition. And yes, training ourselves in virtue and also being awake to sort of social standards helps us. I think one reason why marriage can be helpful in some of these situations, although it certainly doesn't solve problems, is that actually as a society, we have tended to have higher standards for marriage and have been more open about our standards for marriage and they're shared as a society. That doesn't mean that people don't commit infidelity or don't do bad things but there is actually a stronger sense of censure and there is often stronger communal friend and family buy-in to help you keep your marriage together and do the right thing in that space. And that in some ways is why many marriages hang together, but that doesn't make them perfect. And I think or, the expectation- of, Or the capstone of fulfillment, personal fulfillment, that's the other part, right? Yeah. Or the capstone of personal fulfillment. Yeah. Fulfillment. And as you say, I think this is, again, the, the human condition. Nothing here will be perfect. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to be better than we are or strive to be good or moral or ethical. That just means that we admit that we are people who fail. Just because I fail sometimes doesn't mean I shouldn't try at all. It didn't mean, I mean, <clears throat> what's wrong with not, like, with trying to the best of our ability and we put the effort in there, we try to get better, we learn, we read, we talk, we debate, all with the express goal of trying to improve ourselves and also how we interact with our friends, family, people we don't know, and we just do that. Totally, and then totally the rest fine. is up to God. Totally fine on the individual level. I, I, I buy every element of that. It's where I push back on you guys when you're building a society on top of this. I, I, I just, we didn't say, but are we saying that we're building a new society? We're saying that you, you make the jump. I think both of you, to I a certain mean, extent, I, but that, I actually like, think that, that individuals that make up a society to a certain extent. The, I don't buy that. Even if individuals are the more individuals who are committed to making a good society and are working towards that, and also I think thinking and working in concert with other people, that's a better chance of having a better society, not a perfect one. Obviously, one that still fails in the mm -hmm. same way that individuals <laughs> fail. Yeah. You lost to be a right way yeah. you said better society. I mean, I, I, I just think that better, you know, we can say that there are better and worse things, and it's good to try to be better. You, you, you understand? It's good to I'm glad that you're pushing Demir on this because no, Demir. But do, like, you do you understand? I can be a moralist on that level and still deny your 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 quest for a better society. I don't. What do you mean? I, I, because I don't think that like society ends up being like this thing of. We need to go, it's like this this conceit that all we need to do is go door to door, 
change people's minds. And if we go to every door and change everyone's minds, we'll change society. I just don't but think But I don't think that, that we'll go door to door and change every... I don't think we should go door to door. No, no, no. I'm and just I don't it, think the expectation of changing everyone's mind is possible. But I think the more people who are trying, the better. So let's and say let's say I'm if 5,000 people's minds change because of Christine's book and that they decide to reflect that ethic in their everyday life, that's 5,000 people who will have a ripple effect on their friends and family. It's not going to change everything, <clears throat> but at least it's going to be a little bit better. What's wrong with being a little bit better? No, I guess that's a fair point. I, 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 uh, I, guess, I guess the fair point is this, though. I don't think that 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 uh, rationality actually plays the role that you think in this. What is ra what do you mean? <laughs> that I don't think people's minds will be changed by pondering the good ultimately on this. And this is why I bring up marriage and the sort of like the 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 next level hellhole that it ends up being. I think. For but a I lot don't of think people. I'm. I don't. I mean, I think that people should ponder the good. Sure. But I think that actually good leisure what activity. <laughs> yeah, I I do think it's good leisure activity. But I mean, I think even in this case, like what people are beginning to ponder. And what I think is actually healthy and worthwhile is they're asking, why does this thing I thought would be good suck? And how can I make it better? I think that actually that that is a helpful question to ask. And it's one that people ask already. So, so what I want is, I think, to help people think through that question and maybe give them suggestions or a direction or way to channel these thoughts. And they can agree with me or disagree with me, but actually thinking about the question as opposed to walking around in a sad daze is better than not. Did, did, you, did you think the radical monogamy movement, it's ridiculous? You know, I said in the, I said in the piece that I wrote um, that it's really easy to make fun of these people. It's so easy to make fun okay, of these Okay, what is people. radical monogamy exactly? So there was this piece in Vice, naturally, um, that was like, what's the hot new relationship type in town? It's radical monogamy. And the uh, author went around and talked to people who were practicing radical monogamy and was like, what is this? And it was silly because they were like, well, radical monogamy is actually choosing, having tested other relationship options and being open to them, but realizing that monogamy was what was best for me. Radical monogamy is not the monogamy of my grandparents, which they just opted into out of tradition. But me being aware that monogamy has like patriarchal norms and actually takes work to be good. And this goes back to my point about people thinking that people in the past just are dumb and have no complexity and just chose things because they were told to. When in fact, the people in the present are dumb and have no complexity and... Anyway, this and support, like many you know. of these people, many of the people interviewed were like, well, I, you know, I felt, I, I felt because I, you know, am a liberal and an activist or whatever in society, I was told that monogamy was lame and God. repressed God. Um, and that polyamory was sort of the more progressive open route. No one says that. This is absurd. I mean, oh, there's, oh, a, so, there's a style no. article in Vice. This is a, no one no, actually- No, well, so I will, I will say that actually I think that this is, first of all, the conversation about polyamory, like the New York Times is just obsessed with yes, polyamory. Yes, but no one actually does it. It's no, like an elite fixation that only like three people do. It is an elite fixation, but I don't know. On dating apps, you see so many, like a a stressful number of people who just casually have like ENM in their profile and they're like, and they're absurd and they're wrong, not, but there are also a lot of them. Um, but anyways, back to this point, these people are like, you know, I was told that it was crazy to think that 
you could just love one person and be in a relationship. I was told that that was really lame, but actually I've realized that that's what I want. And now I am going to be radical and pursue that. Okay. There is nothing radical about that. That's just okay. called monogamy. Yes. So precisely. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> precisely. And so I was in the piece that I wrote, I was like, it's so easy to make fun of these people and say that this is silly, which frankly it is. But at the same time, I can, I wish them well. I'm happy that people have reflected on their but, lives but that's and realized like what is best for but them so and have tried to pursue it. So that's you know, the good question. for them. But so that's the question though. Like, is it enough that people reflect and maybe come back to, you know, what seems obviously the right way, but without like actually the the broader social buy-in to this? This is what I'm getting at about that I don't have faith in, in sort of, I think that if enough people get here, then you do have broader social buy-in. I think that's the thing. You have to have enough people who are thinking about what the good is and then acting on it to create a society that creates buy-in. I feel like these people will fail in their attempts at radical monogamy because they're like, you know, completely rootless. Anyone who thought polyamory was a viable option and spent several years pursuing it, thinking that that could be good first of all, cannot be trusted and will ultimately probably never be satisfied well, with anything I, they pursue I subsequently. I am wishing them well. Yeah, sure. But it's just like absurd that we've even gotten to this point where like people have to be persuaded of like the most obvious things. That's why I wrote this book, Shadi. Yes. And that's why we can't <laughs> fight wars against like China and Russia because we have- There like, we go. What? We have like elites- who are just like losing their minds. Didn't Ted Cruz tweet this yeah. recently? He was like, I, I think, I think our we're wimpy soldiers. I think we're coming to the end of wimpy this Wimpy polyamorous <laughs> soldiers. On, on, on the line of, of we can't even defeat China and Russia because of because um, of this. I think we've come to an end. My goal Christine, is not to defeat Russia with this, actually. Christine, uh, this awesome, awesome book. Uh, I, I mean, I think the the as long as we've gone on this and I think how wide ranging it's been, I think it's a testament to... How much is buried in this Straussian text, this subversive <laughs> Straussian text to actually try and transform Just things? Just having a conversation. And I guys. salute you for trying to subvert uh, social norms of today uh, to create a better, more conservative world. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> I don't really even know how this. to respond to that. Actually, you know what I think is the case? I think I've gotten to Demir. Have you? Oh, I didn't. Okay. Interpret it in. Shuddy, come on. Oh, oh yeah. Come on. Well, this maybe. is this is this is the end. We can't. We can't. I can't. I can't dispute this because we have been going for many hours at this point. We have. This we might have. be actually one of our longest episodes of Easily. all time. I Easily. am so sorry. To no, all this the is amazing. Out and there. if you guys got, if so, our dear subscribers, if you got to this the very far. end, more <laughs> than two hours, then you have a very compelling reason to buy Christine's book, spread the word, share it with friends and family. And I you, will come to your book club. I love visiting oh. book clubs. Oh, that's a cool idea, actually. We should do a book club. Yeah. Hmm? With our listeners. Yeah. Well, I was trying to do it on the Brothers K, and you were not excited about that. But Wh this who book are the about Brothers K? Brothers Karamazov, come on. <laughs> but a book about sex that's actually a pretty, I think, breezy read. It's pretty short, actually. Um, that could be really fun. Yeah. And to our non-subscribers, I say are, like this is- Yeah, I'm you're part, part of the team. Of you're part of it. Um, but also non-subscribers should buy the book too. Okay, but, th but they, they won't can't be hear hearing this. <laughs> That's Cut it in. Put, <laughs> can you also end the, the 
free episode with a plug for the no, book? Oh, like, we're come doing on, guys. a lot of plugs. We add intros. We do all that. We're, we're going to like. No worries. We're believers Sell in your book. book. Um, no, but thanks for having me. This was actually really yeah, fun. Really, this is great. Right. Well, it's like the drunker I got, the stronger my opinions on virtue became. Mm-hmm.